also to the book of Ephesians. That's Ephesians uh, chapter 6. We're at verse 14. That's our text, Ephesians 6.14. Actually, it's the first half of Ephesians 6.14. We'll begin reading from Ephesians 6, verse 10 through verse 18. This is God's holy word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, <coughs> and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, that our Lord Jesus is the warrior king that he is the one who, is, uh, who has righteousness as a belt and faithfulness about his loins. Father, we thank you for his perfect example. Father, that he judges by your word and all his judgments are righteousness and truth. Father, we pray that you would grant us a love for the truth, that we would despise lies, that we would not live according to them. Father, instead, that we would embrace the promises of your word, the promises of the gospel, that sinners can be brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we can be washed clean by his perfect work, and that we have true righteousness freely given to us that we are commanded to receive by faith. Father, we thank you for your provision for us. We pray, Father, that we would not be blown about so easily by the philosophies of this world and every uh, every system of doctrine that challenges you. Father, we pray that we would be wise and that we might have stability and peace even as we stand upon the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ, who have not committed their lives to him, we pray that you might do a mighty work, that you would give new life, give eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. And we pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I think back to high school, 11th grade, American history. Uh, one of my projects was on this man, John D. Rockefeller. He was referred to back then as America's first millionaire. When, in, in essence, you look at it now, he would have been America's first billionaire. Uh, because money obviously has, uh, has depreciated inflation 
And he was, he was in, I think it was the kerosene business. And it was because of him that they came up with these antitrust laws called anti-monopoly laws. What he would do, he had a huge business. I think it was selling kerosene oil. He'd go to this local area and there might be a mom and pop business and they were selling kerosene. He'd say, okay, I'm going to buy you out your business at market value. And they would say, hey, this business has been in our family for three generations. We can't sell. And he says, okay, we'll deal with that. So then he would ship in all this kerosene and sell it below his own cost. So he's losing money until that business goes out of business. And he says, okay, whatever I offered you in the past, I'll cut it by, uh, I'll cut it by 90%. So I'll, I'll offer you 10% of what I offered you the first time. And they would say, there's nothing we can do but sell. And then he would go from state to state, region to region, and keep on doing this and put everyone out of business. And then he had this monopoly. And they came up with laws in our country because of it. Have you ever wondered about how monopolies work? If you're the only one selling oil, you're the only one selling any product, you can essentially charge whatever price you want. And it seems like in our society, there's some kind of despising of authority or despising of monopolies. And it seems like also in our society, there's a despising of any, any semblance of a monopoly on truth. And you see that. You see who we worship, the Lord Jesus. Do you realize that he makes an exclusive claim? He makes a monopolistic claim on truth. And the world wants you to think, you know what? You should be ashamed of any such claim. It's not as if we claim it of ourselves. We don't claim, hey, we exclusively have the truth, meaning we as individuals. No, that, that would be bigotry. It would be to think that we ourselves possess it of ourselves. But to say that Jesus has the monopoly on truth, that is his claim. There was a big difference between that. And here, the rest of the world wants you to be ashamed. You think you worship the one who is the truth? Well, you realize he claimed that for himself. We're not making that up about Jesus. They want to be able to say, no one has any monopoly on truth. Everyone's truth is equally valid. What might be true for you is true for you. And it's not true for me. But here, Jesus had said, on the last day, he will judge everyone. This is what we saw in Acts 17 last week, right? That, that God has appointed a fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the one whom he has raised from the dead. So what is true for me will also be true for you because Jesus is that judge. So what we believe will be true for me and it'll be true for you and true for every man, woman, and child. That is an absolute claim to truth. That is absolute truth. And just because someone says, I refuse to believe it, doesn't mean it ceases to be true for them. Here, we think about how the Apostle Paul is, is getting to the end of his letter. And he's presented Jesus Christ in all his glory. He's spoken about Christ's love for his bride, the church. And if you're following along regarding what he's describing, Ephesians 1 through 3 is what you ought to believe about God and his perfect work for us as sinners to redeem us. He sent his son to die for us. He sent the Holy Spirit to, to be the, the indwelling, uh, the, the one who, who refines us, the one who teaches us his ways who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Here, if you're following along, then you must understand that you will be under attack. 
you will be under attack by the evil one. Here we have in this passage this description that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's, it's not mere humans. Uh, these are merely the pawns. This is merely what we see, that Satan is using others to oppose us. So they're not the enemies. We're told that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. They are merely the sons of disobedience. Satan is the one who is our enemy. He wants to devour you. Here, when we have this beginning of the armor of God, this belt of truth, this is what we learn here. That fastening the belt of truth means battling Satan's lies as you cling to Christ, who is the truth. Fastening the belt of truth means battling Satan's lies as you cling to Christ, who is the truth. We'll look at this in three points. The first, the spiteful suppression of the truth. Second, the sole source of truth. Third, the savory salvation by the truth. Your savory salvation by the truth. So the first point, the spiteful suppression of the truth. <clears throat> Here, when we think about this armor, the armor that goes on, the first piece is the belt of truth. This is the first item that goes on before anything else. The Apostle Paul is wrapping up Ephesians 1 through 3, God's work for you, the Holy Trinity. Ephesians 4 through 6, a summary is you are obeying God at his word. You're putting to death uh, your old self. You're living according to the new self. And that if you do that, you believe what God has, has said about himself, and then you obey what he calls you to do, then you are a target of the devil. And he has told us in his word here. He's told us there in verses, in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So in order that you may stand firm, you must put on the whole armor of God. He who does not put on the whole armor of God will not. In fact, he cannot stand firm. He will fall. Here, we talk about this whole armor of God. It's a reminder that every Christian is a combatant. There are no non-combatants. There, there are no people who, hey, no, no, I, I haven't put on the uniform. No, everyone has the uniform. It's called the armor of God. You may despise the armor. Uh, here, if there's a battle going on, you would want your people to have armor on because Satan is firing his, his fiery darts. These are dangerous. Here, what is at stake? Well, what's at stake is not just, hey, I have a beautiful day outside. You know, I, I should be out there enjoying my boat, enjoying uh, whatever it is. Well, no, no, no. That's not at stake. It's, it's not an afternoon. It's, it's your very soul. Satan seeks to destroy your soul with poisonous lies, with unbelief, with despair, apostasy, damnation. This is the path. He wants you to question. He wants you to doubt. He uses these poisonous lies. You, you give him a foothold, then the result will be unbelief, despair, apostasy, damnation. He wants to produce discord, division, destruction in Christ's church. You, you follow his plan? He, he doesn't 
This is not someone you want to be friends with. This is not someone that you, you uh, can, can occasionally let, let him into your, uh, let him through your front door and, and into your, uh, your mudroom or have him sit down in your living room. No, this is, this is someone who is dangerous. He wants to see you uh, judged and condemned by our God. And the first step that he wants you to do is reject this belt of truth. Here we think about the context in which Paul's writing. Try to imagine. He's in prison. We saw that with, with Peter, right in Acts, was it Acts 12, 13, where, where he, he literally walks right out of prison. The, the chains fall off, right? So the, the chains, he was being chained to these guards in whatever combination. You can imagine, it's like, hey, you know, buddy, I, I don't particularly like you. You, know, you. you really need to wear some cologne or something. Right? Or whatever's the case. But the bottom line is Paul is chained to this Roman guard. And imagine he's thinking, hey, I'm chained to you all the time. <laughs> imagine a captive audience, right? This is, this, is even, this is even worse being stuck on a plane, right? Obviously the guy is saying, hey, I, I could walk down the hall, open that door and jump out because I'm tired of listening to you. Right? Here, this guy's chained to Paul. And he's like, every day I have to hear you pray and, and talk to me about this Jesus man. Well, here, think about how he was, hey, I like I like the shiny the shiny breastplate that you have on. Hey, what what is this belt? It's a nice thick piece of leather. Tell me about it. Here you think about how there's a physical roar. This is what the Roman soldier was prepared for. There's also the spiritual war. This is what the Apostle Paul is thinking about. You realize that. The concepts in the physical war likely begin in the spiritual war. So you have the spiritual war, you have the methods of attack, and then the, all the concepts in the physical war are, are an application of those. Here we think about how this first step was the girding up of the loins. So other versions will say gird up your loins. Here it's uh, f- fashion, fasten on the belt of truth. A concept of girding up the loins. It was the first step in donning the whole armor of God. So you have a regular garment. Romans, they tended to wear tunics, right? So it was rather loose-fitting garment. Uh, sometimes you see them that they're like knee-length, and, and sometimes they're, they're, they're flowing and a lot longer. And uh, here you can imagine that the lower portion would start to get in the way. So they would, they would gird up their loins. You see that in First, first Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Gird up your loins. That without this belt to hold this lower garment, then uh, the garment will get in the way. That you might trip and fall. If, if it were a long flowing tunic, that you would trip and fall over. You would step on your own tunic. And when someone wasn't wearing this belt, then they would have to hold, to bunch up the tunic and hold it with one hand. Well, last time I checked, you have a shield in one hand, so you have a shield in your support hand, and you have a sword in, in your dominant hand. So when I, you're left or right-handed, it would just flip around. But if you have one, one hand with the shield, one hand with the sword, well, you don't have a hand to hold that garment. Or if you're holding that garment, then you're either missing your shield or you're missing your sword. <laughs> and last time I checked, you, you have to have the sword for offense and the shield for defense, so you, know, you don't have time to hold your garment. You think about the belt also. The belt, 
The belt is what holds up your, your scabbard and your sword to keep it at the ready so, so it's not somewhere far away. You've got to keep it with you. Here we think also about our current cultural context. Perhaps some semblance of this was true at any point in time, any point in history. Here we have uh, no place for truth, that relativism reigns in the day. This very idea, hey, what might be true for you is not true for me. Hey, that's okay, right? You enjoy your truth, I enjoy my truth. And our truths are mutually exclusive because there's no absolutes in life. And if you think about, hey, wait a minute, there's no absolutes in life. Isn't that an absolute that you're saying to me? So, so your, your rule just destroyed your own principle, right? There's no absolutes. Well, there is an absolute, there's, there's absolute truth. And, and the world wants to say, hey, there's no monopolies to truth. Any and every religion is good and acceptable, except Jesus Christ, who is the true and living God. Correct? I mean, this is what the world say. Hey, oh, you want to talk about other religions? Oh, that's great. You know, here, I think back, even, even when I was in high school, they, they, they could bring in all kinds of other religious people to our world history class as a freshman in high school. It, it, we're going to have a local community. We'll bring in these people from other false religions. But then when did they ever bring in the Christian minister who, to, to proclaim the truth? No, they didn't. No, no, we, we have to hear about all the other religions. Just we can't hear about Christianity because that's the truth. Here, you think about what happens even in the church. Second Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Here you think about this truth. What is, what is the truth being referred to? Because here, think about how we have the belt of truth, but then we also have the sword of the Spirit. So it's the Word of God. So then, you know, what, what, what is being referred to? Well, we got to understand that this truth being referred to is tied... Uh, really tied to all the other pieces of armor, right? This idea of an absolute truth to which we must hold to. It is the Word of God. This system of doctrine that, uh, that the Word of God teaches us. Here, other people have talked about, um, in addition to that, there's this concept of sincerity, that let us draw near with sincerity of heart, that this also is true, that, that we shouldn't uh, draw near to God with some type of uh, duplicity or hypocrisy. That's true. But here I, I'm thinking that this truth refers to the system of doctrine taught in God's word. That it's the foundation upon our, our faith, where you think about the gospel of peace, the gospel shoes of peace, the breastplate of righteousness. This is all founded upon whether or not there's the truth of God's word. So there's the word of God defends, but it also is, is a weapon by which uh, we can attack. And I'm not talking about trying to Bible thump people. And this is the word of God by which we persuade others. That's what the sword of the spirit is used for. Here we think about how the truth is despised. The truth is despised. There is a sinful spite of the truth because it is a function, an expression of their spite of God. Despising the truth is despising God. 
Psalm 101, verse 7, He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. This is God's warning. Those who believe false gods, those are, they are the ones who are believing lies. They are the ones who work deceit. The claim that there's some other way to heaven. There's some other way to the Father. That that's, that's lies. Here we think about the sons of disobedience. Following the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. This is why there's the spite of the truth. In John 8, verses 44 to 45, Jesus is in the heat of discussion with the Pharisees, and eventually they get to this point. We have one Father, God. That's what the Pharisees are claiming, right? Eventually they say, we have one Father, God. And he's saying, no, you're wrong. If God were your Father, you would believe the one that he sent. Jesus is saying that's himself. He says, no, your Father is Satan. He is the father of lies. And he says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Because you worship your father, you follow your father, who is the father of lies. He says, now suddenly Jesus tells you the truth. And he says, you cannot accept it. It doesn't fit into your system. With the spite of the truth, there comes also the suppression of the truth. A desire to suppress it. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You notice how truth, oftentimes truth, is spoken with that still small voice. It's not with the loud shouting. It's oftentimes that still small voice. Who's listening? Who's listening to that? It's not going to be the one that's broadcasted uh, on the biggest networks. It's not going to be the one with the most money behind it. It's going to be that person who's sharing that good news of the truth with someone who is brokenhearted. The suppression of the truth must be hard and it must be difficult. It must be that huge hammer that comes down. Here, when we think about the pattern, what is going on? Our Elder Wayne read early in Ephesians 4, verses 17 and following. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So here it begins with this futility of their minds, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. This is all the result of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And eventually we're told that they will live a life of impurity and sensuality. That, that's the product. That's, that's the outcome. Animosity of the truth then leads to sinful living. Here, this often comes up. People in the church will even say, hey, uh, it doesn't matter so much what we believe, right? So long as we are upright and good people and kind to others and we're nice. Well, hey, how, how long is that going to last? Because what, what, what basis does morality and ethics have if you remove truth from it? 
Well, the answer is there is no basis for morality or ethics if truth is removed. It, it won't last long. It, it will disappear. You, you think about any, any denomination in Christ's church that attempts to think this way. Let's just uh, take out the offensive part about the truth and let's just try to be good people and help others. Well, what does helping others look like if there's no truth, if there's no morality? Here we all think also then if truth is despised and it's suppressed, then there will be a scarcity. There will be a rarity to this truth. The rejection of absolute truth, the product is a rejection of God. This belief in relativism, what is true for you uh, may not be true for me and vice versa. The, the, the belief in pluralism, the worldly claim that there are many ways to heaven and to happiness. Nobody has a monopoly on the truth. That, that's what pluralism is. And so also, you have that question, even as the prophet Isaiah asked, Isaiah 53.1, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It requires a divine work for us to esteem and to cherish and to embrace the truth. But you realize, does any one of us arrive at the knowledge of the truth by our own wisdom, by our own intelligence, by our own power? We must come to terms in each and every situation and realize that None of us has a monopoly on the truth. None of us has any leg up on anyone else. It's only by the work of our God that we come to an understanding, to an acceptance of the truth. So that's the first point, a spiteful suppression of the truth. The second point, the sole source of the truth. The sole source of the truth is none other than God himself. That truth is the very nature of God. Psalm 86 Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So what is God's way? God's way is the way of truth. Teach me your way. Because we are used to living and believing and obeying lies. That is the sinful heart. It's not as if you have some people who are generally good and they generally live and follow the truth. No, there, there's only two types of people. We're going we're to get to that in a moment. I'm jumping ahead of myself here. We see also the very nature of God, and we have the exclusive claims of our Lord Jesus. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have here either a crazy uh, egomaniac in the Lord Jesus, or we have he who is the Son of God. Here, you think about why the, the world despises the truth. It's because Jesus is the truth, and he has the monopoly on the truth. Here, we think about the, the, the very concept of an antithesis. This antithesis, what does it mean? Antithesis uh, remains, or, or refers to the opposite. It talks about a dichotomy that there's only two. There's one or the other. There's only two categories. There's only two groups. There's no third group. The truth separates. The, tr the spirit discerns. It discriminates. Here, you think about the word discrimination. Almost every usage of discrimination in our culture is a bad connotation. 
but here is actually a good one. There's a, there's a discrimination going on between good and evil. All mankind fall out into only two groups. This is called the binary system. Think about a computer, how it operates, operates on a binary system. There's a one or a zero. Just as truth is in Jesus, so you will follow him. And someone else despises and rejects him. There's only two groups. You have the sheep and you have the goats. You have the sons of disobedience. You have God's own possession. You have formerly darkness. You have now light in the Lord. See these two groups? Are you following the two groups here? There is a dichotomy. Isaiah chapter 11, we read earlier, verses 4 and 5. The standard by which Jesus, the warrior king, judges. He judges in faithfulness or he judges in truth. What is the role of truth in your life? You think about how we think about truth. It's the truth of God's word. There was a name... There's a name, John Dewey. Uh, you might remember him. He's, there's the library system, library of Congress system, and there's the Dewey Decimal System. And apparently this man, John Dewey, he was referred to as the father of the modern public education system. And his desire, his goal, was that, that he would do away with this antithesis, with this dichotomy. Thinking in categories of two. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. There is darkness and light. And he says, we must do away with that system. Do away with that thinking. We cannot think it that way. And you think, where does that modern public education system go then? Well, there were Christians who were in the past who came before John Dewey. And they knew, hey, listen, if you have this public education system, you're going to have this challenge. There's going to be this problem. Here, we think about how this antithesis, does it, does it go on in your mind? Do you realize that certain things that you hear, whatever thoughts, whatever ideas, whatever philosophies, do you see that somehow they are a threat, they are a challenge to the system of truth that our Lord Jesus is presenting to us. We ought not to think of them so much as safe. We ought not to think, well, wait a minute, what, what is their goal, their immediate goal, at least what they're saying they're trying to do? Because here, you realize, and you talk to various groups, you, you hear the propaganda, various sources, do, do you ever get the sense, hey, whatever those people, whatever that group is saying, it's, it's a lie up front, it's always a lie. What they're saying they're trying to do is not what they're doing. We ought not to be so, uh, so easily credulous of others, especially coming from the world. There ought to be uh, a hesitance to accept because their challenge is they're challenging the very truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus proclaimed himself as that sole source of truth. You must think about what is the role of truth for your life? Here, we come to the third point, your savory salvation by the truth. This truth is of vital importance because this truth is the basis for your spiritual birth. James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's choice was that he would use the truth of his word, the truth of the gospel, that we would hear and believe upon Jesus Christ. Here, think about where your life would be without truth, where your hope, where your peace, where your joy would be if truth were all relative. There is the necessity of truth for your life. Perhaps you've gotten to that point where you've said to yourself, Jesus must be true because I have nothing else. Any other rock I've attempted to stand on poked a hole in my foot, or it appeared to be rock, but it was smoke, and I stand on mud. Jesus must be true because he is the only hope. Here, you think about how not only your spiritual birth, but your, your entire salvation is founded upon this truth. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That this is your salvation through belief in the truth. That these are the means by which God uses to save sinners. That this gospel will go forward that Jesus Christ, who was nailed to the cross, died raised again on the third day, that all of you who are trusting in him, that this is your hope for eternal life. This is your hope to see the Father. This is your hope of heaven. The world is going to come and say, hey, uh, that's shameful. There are other ways. There's easier ways. But is there any other way? The answer is no. The only way was the cross. The Father is holy. And he's not one who will merely, okay, I'll, uh, you, you walk this way, I'll look that way. Sin had to be paid for. The holy and just God is a consuming fire. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross. There was no necessity, there wasn't an obligation on God's part for us, but in order for us to be redeemed, payment had to be made. And you think about how the truth of was it by works or was it according to faith such that it would be by grace that is the way of salvation not that you've earned it in any way you cannot it's by Christ's perfect work and you're called to trust in him here we think also of the sanctification of the spirit all who believe in Jesus Christ all who follow this truth are set apart by the Holy Spirit. We see also uh, the matter of, uh, of the work of the church. We read earlier in Ephesians chapter 4 that God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints so that we might come to a unity of the faith and to the knowledge of God. Knowledge of Jesus Christ. And 1 Timothy speaks about how the church is the pillar and support of the truth. This is the role of the church, is to proclaim this truth. It's not, it's not the church's job to define truth. No. 
God has defined truth. He's given us his word, and the church is founded upon it. Its job is to proclaim, to disciple, and to teach this truth to others. Here, we think about how your growth is according to this truth, that you would have a regular intake of the truth of God is essential for your Christian life. How, how often do we run across all kinds of different theories and ideologies? They're all competing for our attention. They're all competing for our loyalty. The spiritual battle that's going on, it's waged for your soul. And the attempt is to use enticing lies that, that the devil puts forward to try to get some kind of a foothold. This is where you and I have to be careful about philosophies that come, that based upon the traditions of men. You think about the simple matter of identity. Okay? One hand, you look at identity politics, identity politics, right? But then you look at the simple matter of identity. Who is your identity, or what is your identity? Your first answer must be, my identity is in Jesus Christ, because he defines me, he defines who I am, he defines what I love, he defines what I hate. And it's like, well, what about you, aren't you an American? Hey, listen, that is so far down the list compared to Jesus Christ. Well, what about the color of your skin? What about how tall you are? What about how much money you make? Those things are immaterial compared to your identity in Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Any time you have some system that's coming in trying to tell you, hey, you're this, you're that. You know, you, you, need, you must take your identity in this or identity in that. Where they're trying to compete with you regarding Jesus Christ. No, he is our chief identity. Anything else must be a distant second. Our loyalties must be to him. Your spiritual growth. Your spiritual growth is is dependent on that, your identity. Here, we think about this test of maturity. One of the tests of maturities is, are you able to discern the wiles of the devil? What are his ways? Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're not unfamiliar with his schemes. How does he work? He's like that polished sales guy who shows up. You realize, you, you think about some of these serial killers. I don't need to name them, but you look back, the ones who have killed 20, 30, 40 people, the description of, of people about these serial killers were, this man was so smooth, so likable, no one suspected them that they were a serial killer. Some of these they would you know, put on a, a sling, have a cane, and, and they would walk. And, and you know, this, is, this is, I'm not going to name names. They, these were real people that walked. And you know, especially the women who are a little more sympathetic than men, right? They would, oh, let me, let me help you. And, and you know, right over here, I, I dropped something right by the car. She bends over to pick up something, smack over the head with a wrench. And, and you think about how deceptive. Satan and his ways are. We don't suspect him. There's no more thorough test of a Christian's maturity and growth 
than one's knowledge and awareness of the wiles of the devil. The world has no other standard of truth or righteousness by which to judge. So Satan's lies are easy. They have no standard. You expect that the church would have a standard. No, we're not going to accept that doctrine. We're not going to accept uh, those philosophies because we have a standard. It's the word of God. You would expect that the world would be, uh, sorry, the church would be more discerning in general than the world. The world's standards are constantly changing according to the flavor of the day. The Christian is told to follow Jesus Christ who is the truth. For Satan, he has to come uh, to the Christian with a little more uh, finesse. So he, he puts the candy coat right, of scripture. Hey, look at this. Uh, he, he puts the candy coat of the scripture on it. He has to come with some half-truth. So it's a, it comes mixed with a little bit of truth uh, and then there's a twist to it. He has to be a little more deceptive for God's people. Some of Satan's wiles are not so obvious. It takes wisdom and discernment to see through it. That's, that's why it's maturity. Here, you think also, a, t- a test or a mark of maturity. So the very, this very principle of truth in various translations, you can look at the Old Testament where sometimes the word is faithfulness, sometimes the word is truth. And it's because it, the, the, the Jewish definitions are often very broad. They have words that have very broad definitions. So this concept of stability or firmness or steadfastness, uh, faithfulness, that they're a result of believing and standing upon the truth. So the result of believing the truth is that you would be steadfast. You would be firm. You would be stable. The result is that Ephesians 4.14 is that you would not be uh, like children tossed here and there by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Meaning that as you're more familiar with the wiles of the devil, then you start to become more discerning. Wait a minute. That seems like they're promising me a little too much. So first, my life is in danger, or, or there's, they're set in panic. And then, so they're presenting a problem, and then they're presenting themselves or their philosophy as the solution. Right? So wait a minute. There's not a problem. And if there's not a problem, that's not a solution. Jesus has told me other things. I'm not in a panic. There's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Here, Colossians 2, verse 8 says very similar. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. That this empty deception, there's often no substance to the world's lies. It's not based on fact. It's just fear. It's just panic. And you and I must be ready with the truth. We respond to these such threats. Well, what has Jesus told us in his word? What has he promised us? Are we clinging to his promises? Are we clinging to Jesus Christ? The result of this stability and steadfastness due to the truth, is that you and I would have peace. We're believing the truth. We'll have stability. We'll have steadfastness. 
and the result is peace. Isaiah 26, 3. The steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So there'll be various things that come up. People will be up in arms in some kind of panic. But you and I should be there. Hey, wait a minute. The Lord has promised us great things. Okay, the worst is that we will die from whatever this threat is. But he's also promised us that after death, we are united to him. That he has prepared a place for us in heaven. So it was the worst thing going to happen is that we're going to die. But he's already told us that. After death comes judgment. So, hey, whatever panic you have in the world, well, you know what? He's already told us that. You see the, even the pattern, hey, who, who manages to, to get vaporized? There's only a few people in the Bible who didn't die. They went straight, they're taken up in a whirlwind, right? There, there are many people like that. But we're told that at the end, when Jesus returns, uh, those who are in the ground will rise up to meet him, and, and those who uh, are alive will be taken up. So those people who are alive, when Jesus returns, they're not going to die. They're just going to be taken up. Other than that, the rest of us will pass through this thing called death. But we're told, hey, don't be afraid of it. And so the Lord is there. He gives us his word. He gives us his truth. That he is with us. To live is Christ and to die is gain. The world's worst problem, we're told, is the pathway to be with the Father. Here, we think about some of the simple things that come up regarding truth. Truth and love are never separated. They're always together. So you think about, hey, I'm going to hammer that guy with this truth. Well, hey, are we going to speak the truth in love? Because here, we're going to love someone. You, you can't have love without truth. You can't have truth without love. They, they must go together each, each and every time. Oh, you know what? I'm not going to judge those people. I'm just going to love them. Well, wait a minute. Are, are they living in, in, in sinful disobedience? Because here, we, we can't love them unless we're proclaiming the truth in some way. Here, we also have the reminder about that stability that comes with living and believing the truth. It's not enough that we, oh, yes, it's an intellectual thing. You know, I, yeah, I hold this thing. I believe it. It's like the, the little snow globe on your mantle, right, that collects dust. You know, hey, occasionally I take it and I shake it up and I see, oh, it's a, it's a snowy snow globe. Hey, we live in Minnesota. We don't need snow globes, right? And we, we have that at least half the year, right? Maybe the warm part, when it gets really hot and humid, then you shake it. Oh, man, I, I'm missing that snow. Here. You think about uh, the, the stability of truth, correct? That it's not something that's merely intellectual. Unless we're living the truth, well, we're not following the truth. The truth is not in us. And we also think, even the Jews thought about this. They thought that somehow there was something special about them. They, were, they thought, hey, we're the Jews. We're God's people, right? They stop thinking that the special part was not them. The special part is God. Jesus comes to them saying, hey, I can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. It's not truth that saves per se. It's Jesus who saves. We must never forget that. We can't, we can't separate this. Hey, if I believe this and this and this, I'll be saved. Well, 
if we forget about it, Jesus walks out the door, right? Hey, we're holding to this truth, but Jesus has left the room. Well, what does that leave us regarding the truth? I'll tell you what that'll leave us with. We will be harsh, we'll be judgmental, we'll be cruel, we'll be pharisaical. That's what happens when Jesus leaves the room and we're holding to some kind of truth. That there must be in us a love for Jesus Christ. A love for Jesus Christ, who is the truth. It changes exactly, entirely how we think about what we do with that truth, how we live out that truth. And if that love of Christ has left, truth will be cruel. There must be a reminder that truth and love coexist and that we have stability in our lives because of Christ, that Christ willingly laid down his life for sinners and that you and I would be those who follow Jesus Christ, who is the truth. May we go to our God together in prayer.